They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in God's sight today. We are we're following the Apostle John through his gospel. Now, when you get to this passage, it's a peculiar passage because it doesn't fit the style and the characteristics of the rest of John's gospel. And most scholars say with certainty that it probably wasn't original to the gospel of John. If you're reading along in your Bible, you'll notice there's a note saying something to that effect. It's a peculiar passage, but it's an important passage because as we read it, it is consistent actually with the other three gospels. It reads more like something you'd see in Matthew or Mark or Luke. And when you look at Jesus and you look at his habits and you look at his character, it all rings true. This is the real Jesus we're reading about here. So scribes in later centuries, Christian scribes, desired to preserve this passage by inserting it mostly here, a couple of other places in different manuscripts, but, but they, it means that scribes considered this passage so important that it belonged in one of the Gospels. It was authentic and authoritative to them, as authoritative as John's Gospel itself. So I believe it is authoritative, and that's why I've decided to preach on it. Now, putting that aside, I want you to imagine a ring of fire. Just kind of daydream with me for a second. Imagine a ring of fire, not Johnny Cash's ring of fire. But I, I, I want you to think of a ring of people, okay? This ring of fire is a ring of people. I want you to think of a ring of people with you in the middle of them. I want you to think of people who have accused you of things and blamed you for things and even threatened you. Do you see them? Maybe your life hasn't been like that. So you can even think of people whose opinions about you matter very much to you. 
people whose opinions of you, you care very much about. You want to please them. You are desperate that they think well of you. Do you see them? Can you imagine it? A ring of people, a circle of fire all around you. The people in our rings of fire in this life may make us feel isolated or accuse us or label us, condemn us. You ever felt condemned? You ever felt labeled? You ever felt exposed? Can you see those people? And I know that might be painful to do that, so I'm, I'm sorry. But I want to tell you that Jesus' presence, Jesus' presence is the only stay, safe space for us to come as sinners. When you think of that ring of fire, and you can almost picture the people surrounding you in that ring because of your life, I want to ask you a question. Where is God in that ring? Is he even there? Can you see him? Can you sense his presence? If he's there, do you believe he condemns you also? Do you believe he's blamed you or labeled you? Jesus is a safe person to be in the middle of that ring with. And as we look at this passage, I think we have an opportunity to look at our sin as, as individuals to look at our sin, but also as a faith community to look at ourselves. And then finally, it has to end with this, to look at Jesus fresh. Consider today an opportunity to look at your sin, to look at ourselves, because we're all sinners, a community of sinners, and then finally together, but as individuals to look at Jesus. So you know this, looking at your sin is painful always, but especially when you know that others see it, right? So in this passage, we meet a woman who is surrounded by people, but she's utterly alone in the midst of them, we are told. The scribes and Pharisees approach Jesus now, the scribes are basically, uh, they're, they're scholars. They are experts in the law of Moses, understanding it, preserving it, and interpreting it for practical reasons. The Pharisees are a sect of religious, uh, you can kind of call them zealots, but the goal is they want to be pure. They want to live according to the law and be as pure as they can as devout Jews. So essentially, in the scribes and Pharisees, you have those who studied the law and those who lived by it. And we're told here in verses 3 and 4 that they approached Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, it does seem that the woman was guilty of that, uh, that she had been caught in a shameful situation. Notice the Bible does not excuse that. The Bible doesn't deny that. And later, Jesus himself will confirm that it's true. But the whole ordeal is a shenanigan. The whole thing is, is awkwardly conspicuous, don't you think? For instance, where was the man 
Where was her partner and why wasn't he dragged into the middle of everybody as well? Stranger still, how did these distinguished holy men know how to find, like, how did they know how to find this woman, right? Like, what, what tipped them off to be able to find this woman and literally the text tells us catch her in the act as though they set a trap for her and hunted her down. And plus to add to that, the, the, the coarseness of their behavior in shaming her and standing her up in the middle of everybody near the temple in public with all of these people surrounding Jesus as he is teaching them. So the woman had clearly sinned, but the whole thing smells suspicious. It stinks. And we discover that there was a motive to their diligence in catching her. Look at verses 5 and 6 where they say to Jesus, Now, the law, in the law, Moses commanded us, and this is true, not exact, but true. Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? And we're told they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. In the original Greek, the word for test is the same word for tempt. You know, like Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's the same word. So this is, this is a malicious type of testing. And they say to Jesus, so what do you say? We're supposed to stone her, right? Now, how is this a test? Well, two possible ways. If Jesus says, yes, the law of Moses said to stone her, so stone her, well, they could report Jesus to the Romans. Only the Romans at that time in history, because the Romans occupied Israel, only the Romans had the right to, uh, to enact capital punishment. We'll find out more about that as we approach the crucifixion later in John's gospel. And so if Jesus says, yeah, you're right, the law says it, stone her, well, they can go tell the Romans that some Jewish rabbi is wandering around pronouncing capital punishment, the death penalty on people. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, well, now they can spread a reputation about Jesus that he's anti-law, that he's against and denies the law of Moses and basically damage his reputation amongst devout Jews. Either answer would get Jesus into trouble with a different crowd, and that's what they're trying to do. So they're not sincere, right? These religious leaders are not about righteousness and justice, they are bent on trapping Jesus. They don't care about the woman. They have trapped her in order to get to Jesus. The woman, though she is morally guilty, she was a pawn. And therefore, despite what she had done, she became a victim of injustice. And I find it fascinating that today, on a global scale, we have seen a very similar thing take place right on the news. If you've been watching the Olympics, a 15-year-old figure skater from another country, 15 years old, okay? So, so now, if you're a teenager, no offense, but to old guys like me, that's practically a child, 15 years old, okay? Tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs found in her system. Now, she will have to live with the culpability and the technical guilt in that, right? You can't deny the test. Technically, chemically, she was found to be guilty. But considering the people around her, 
considering the power, the influence, the system of adults surrounding her, she's a victim who literally stood before the entire world alone. Countless, millions of people watching, and she stood there alone, taking the fall. A global ring of fire. Likewise, and on a much smaller scale, the woman of John chapter 8 was alone. There were people all around, and she was still utterly alone, surrounded in a ring of shame as the scribes and the Pharisees surrounded her and brought her in to crowds of people and made her stand in the midst of them in her shame. Looking at your own sin is painful, especially when others see it. What is the Christian response to this sort of dynamic? Right? When people's sin both exposes them and isolates them, right? When someone's sin highlights them and alienates them at the same time, what is the Christian response to that? I think Chrissy uh, did a great job with the kids earlier of explaining that. Looking at ourselves as a community of faith, we must be sure that we are not among those who are doing the condemning. This is an opportunity to look at ourselves. Jesus was confronted with a guilty sinner, a sinner who was surrounded by, as Exodus chapter 23 would explain, malicious witnesses. It was one thing if somebody was guilty, but just as sinful, the law of Moses says, they didn't think about this, was being malicious in your attempt to catch somebody and convict them of a crime. And so, you know, uh, the New Testament scholar Leon Morris makes the point in this passage that, you know, Jesus was not obligated to do or say anything. He could have minded his own business. He could have said nothing. He could have done nothing, could have just kind of ignored this weird situation and kept teaching. He could have refused to give a decision. But in that case, the woman would certainly have been lynched. And so in verse 7, we are told that Jesus very slowly, right, not in their timing as we've looked at in the past few weeks, but Jesus very slowly finally gets up and says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Silence. Deuteronomy chapter 17 stipulates that the witnesses to a capital crime are bound to be the first ones to throw the stones in a public execution. They think Jesus doesn't know the law all that well as an untrained man. By Jesus saying this, if any of them had witnessed her adultery, and I think that's a big if, if anyone had been witnesses to her adultery, they were bound by the law of Moses to step in that ring and throw the stones first. And who is going to be willing to admit that they were in a situation where they were able to catch her, giving themselves away as malicious witnesses? Further than that, though, this is the heart of what Jesus is doing. He's challenging them to look at themselves, 
right? Who among you is innocent? Who among you is without sin? And of course, the answer to that is no. So if any of them had picked up a stone, he would have been making a ludicrous, blasphemous statement that he was without sin. Jesus is getting at a concept here that the Apostle Paul, decades later, would hit on in his letter to the church in Rome. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And it doesn't mean that you were guilty of precisely the same sin in exactly the same way, but it says in the Bible that anyone who breaks any point of the law is guilty of breaking all of it. We're all lawbreakers. And so none of us has the moral authority to become the moral judge. So Jesus did something amazing in his amazing reply. He does two things. He upholds the moral law and he protects the weak. At the same time, he upholds the truth and he shows compassion. And, and you know, it is an important thing today in our society to understand and practice justice and righteousness. This is a perfect example of doing both. Jesus is pursuing righteousness and he is pursuing justice at the same time. And this is what it looks like. So as a Christian, as a Christian community, if you are a Christian listening, where are we inside these rings of fire in our culture? in our community, in our extended families? Where are we as a community inside these rings of fire? Are we standing with the accusers? Or are we there as rescuers? A woman who has an abortion must face the guilt of ending a life within her. But will we condemn her without befriending her and helping her in the rehabilitation process? Our friends in the LGBTQ plus community must face the moral consequences of their lifestyles. But will we condemn them without befriending them as sinners ourselves? You know, as we read this, we're not told if the woman ever repented. We're not told if she changed her lifestyle. We don't know anything about her after this moment, but Jesus invited her to do so. He invited her to change. He left the door open. He said, stop doing what you're doing, but I don't condemn you. He gave her a path toward healing. Will we do the same as a Christian community? We must look at ourselves and ask, where are we in that ring of fire? I think this passage, and I think today, is an invitation to anyone who feels exposed and shamed. Maybe you're a Christian and you live with guilt or you live in condemnation. You can see those people accusing you, label you, staring at you. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure out what, what, what is going on in our society, what is going on in our life, uh, how are Christians actually supposed to act and, and speak. This is an invitation to anyone today who feels exposed and shamed. And here's the invitation. I invite you to face Jesus alone and let him speak truth and grace to you. Truth and grace. Face Jesus alone. 
Forget about everybody else and what they say and how they look at you and just face Jesus. Because we see in verse nine, after all of those leaders had left her, they dragged her, they shamed her in public, they dragged her into this kangaroo court, right? And then Jesus throws their own medicine back at them and leaves them speechless. And it it says that they walked away one by one until there, were, there was nobody left. They caused this huge commotion. They destroyed this woman's life. And then what? Like in most situations, now they're gone. No trace of them. They leave a mess and they leave. And it says that only Jesus was left. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And you see, Each person, every single one of us, beyond the accusations of other people, beyond our reputation and our history, even beyond your own view of yourself, every single one of us must get to a point where there's nobody left but Jesus and me. You and Jesus. This is what it comes down to if you want to follow him, if you want to continue following him, is at the end of the day, you got to get past your sin, past their opinions of you, past your opinion of yourself, and it's just you and Jesus in the room. Yeah, there were hundreds of people watching, but in a sense, it was down to her and Jesus. Just look at him. Each person must face God alone with their sin. And that's a scary thing. We're all culpable. Many of us are, you know, the victims of injustice, and sometimes we develop sinful habits because of how people have sinned against us, and that is all. That we want to handle that all very carefully. But all of us have to face God alone, and that is frightening. But guess what? We discover something amazing. That looking at Jesus, you see in God that he's in there with you in the ring of fire. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is in the ring of fire with you. Everybody else leaves, and he's still there. And although that should frighten us and petrify us, we discover something amazing, that the one who truly was without sin does not throw a stone at you. Who among them while she stood in their midst, was without sin and able to throw a stone, it was Jesus. Who, who knew hearts, who, who knew, who could read people's minds, who understood everything about their lives, knew what she had done in private, Jesus did. And we're told in verses 10 and 11, Jesus responds to her this way, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. And that is Jesus. He will love you. He will receive you as you are, but he will love you too much to leave you as you are. And this is a living illustration of what Jesus had earlier in John 3 said to Nicodemus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Salvation is possible. We see here now with a woman, salvation is possible because someone did receive your condemnation. Jesus stepped into the ring. He stepped into the ring and received those stones for you. 
Jesus' presence is the only safe space for us as sinners to come and stay, to look at our own sin, to look at ourselves, to stare at him and see that he is not here to condemn us. Your accusers and your spiritual enemy, Satan himself, who in the Bible is referred to as the accuser, and even your guilty self, the way you see yourself and blame yourself and punish yourself, that crowd, okay, that, in, that enormous kangaroo court of your own opinions and Satan and everybody who has accused you and blamed you and labeled you in your life, that crowd of people that you're stand stuck, exposed in the middle of, that's the scribes and Pharisees who claim to know the law. Isn't that truth? Everybody knows. Everybody knows what you've done and has an op- a legal opinion on what needs to happen to you. It's a kangaroo court. And Jesus steps into the middle of that court and he says to them, he says to those scribes and Pharisees in your life the same thing essentially that Aslan, the lion, said to the white witch, do not cite the ancient magic to me. I was there when it was written. You think you know the law. I wrote it. Just as Edmund Pevensey was guilty and Aslan knew it, Jesus knows you're guilty. We're not, we're not glossing over that fact. He knows I'm guilty. But just as Aslan took Edmund's condemnation on the stone table, Jesus took the the stones for you when he hung on a cross. It's because as Aslan knew, Jesus also knew about a deeper magic, a more ancient magic than the law itself that condemns guilty sinners. And this is the deeper magic that Jesus knew when he stood there with the woman and said, neither do I condemn you. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So my invitation is face Jesus alone. Face him alone and let him speak his grace and his truth to you. And that ring of fire around you, those people, one by one, will seem to walk and fade away. And we, and we, with Christ, will surround you. And we, with Christ, will surround one another in protection and friendship. Let's pray. My God, uh, I ask for anyone, uh, anyone among us today who, who is feeling hopelessly exposed in the presence of many and yet feeling completely alone, I pray that they would find your son with them in the ring. And I pray that Jesus would lead them to his truth and grace. Father, we ask not 
to be isolated and separated from the people of this world, but we ask that their opinions would fade away in light of the love that you have for us, demonstrated in Jesus, who took our condemnation upon himself. What a Savior. Hallelujah. Amen.